Hi, Future Jody here. I just wanted to say a few things before we get into the episode. After recording, Caitlin and I agreed that the format didn't necessarily work well to instill a good back and forth between the two of us. So if you listen and think, why is Caitlin so quiet this episode, we are going to try to experiment uh, with ways to improving this going forward, starting with chapter two. We also are going to do things with the main show as well to try to facilitate a better listening experience, beginning with trying to have shorter episodes by possibly adding additional weekly episodes to split things up. Although next week, uh, we will still have the one main segment, though it is probably going to be shorter uh, because Ezra basically was boring this week on his own show anyways. (laughs) Uh, We are also going to add a kind of optimistic segment at the end of each main episode so that each episode ends on a more positive note, or at the very least ends with some real-world things people can do to get involved and make the world a better place. So please let us know if you like any changes we make. Caitlin and I both hardly know what we're doing, so we hope to take on any criticism and make the show more enjoyable as we learn how to do this. About the episode you were just about to listen to, I want to give one correction. At some point we talk about Franz Kafka... And I say the trial is about the Soviets or Soviet Russia, and I know that is wrong. I don't know what the hell I was thinking when I said that. Kafka was likely writing about his own experiences within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so my bad. Lastly, since I was too tired to remember to plug in the original recording, please consider donating to patreon.com slash imperial news if you enjoy what we are doing. And with that, enjoy the rest of the show. Fake, fake, fakety, fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to a special episode of Imperial News, where we will be covering Ezra Levant's career in word printing, <laughs> starting with his 2009 book, Shakedown. This is our first episode, and we will be covering the foreword by Mark Stein. We'll also do Ezra's introduction and then the first chapter. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm still tired, so we're, we're going to break the fourth wall. We record this on the same day as our last episode. <laughs> but we're going to plow through it anyways. I was up till four in the morning last night preparing for this episode, so we're going to get it done. And sadly, like the one thing that I was like hunting for, I didn't end up finding, so there might be a hole in this, but oh well, I don't think it's that relevant. Part of the difficulty is this book was written in 2009, and so like... Finding certain documents from 2009 are, are a lot harder. Or, like, part of it is like, you know, Ezra, like, he'll say something and then you're like, that's so vague. And, like, yeah. at least when he says it in this context, like today, I can search for keywords and maybe I'll hit something. And I usually do. The only one I didn't was that one story about the Chinese soldiers exchange thing and i still don't know if that even was true (laughs) could have just been making stuff up but there's some of these things where he'll just say something that's completely unsourced and i'm left going i don't know if this happened or not uh but anyways we're gonna we're just gonna go right into it so as we already stated we uh will begin our descent into ezra levant's writing career beginning with his fourth fourth book shakedown how are and this the sub subtitle how our government is undermining democracy in the name of human rights <laughs> which is you know human rights he's going after human rights all right and we're starting with his fourth first because i don't have access to his earlier works okay but also because shakedown and its preceding context is kind of what solidified ezra's self-constructed uh, narrative as a free speech defender and this also was like bolstered by a lot of like 
quasi celebrities. So Rick Mercer, who's like a famous Canadian who yeah. had a show on uh, CBC, who was kind of like a John Stewart type figure. Yeah. Uh, not as good, in my opinion. <laughs> but he did one of his rants defending Ezra uh, for the case that we're going to talk about. Uh, Hitchens defended him, Christopher Hitchens. He was big in the like atheist movement. And there's likely connections there because Hitchens also liked Mark Stein, who does the foreword. And likely because both of these figures had like the anti-Islam position that yeah. Hitchens yeah. had. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, like, this book was listed as one of, or was nominated, or I wouldn't even say nominated. There was, like, this poll where people could vote. It was, like, like an online thing, and it won, like, best political book of the past 10 years, and this was in 2011. So there's enough people online that were, like, so influenced by this book that they won some sort of, like, online competition. Another reason for starting with this book is that it was released 10 years ago in 2009, and there are many aspects of the book that touch on topics that Ezra still discusses on his podcast today, such as uh, issues with human rights commissions in Canada, so all the Yaniv crap, and uh, also his negative views on Muslims, and his position that we now live in a time that's free from racism, anti-Semitism's over, it's all done, (laughs) we don't need to do anything about it, we solved it. It's a relatively short book. It's roughly 85 pages long, and it consists of nine chapters. But I predict we will cover a single chapter each week. Uh, but we, we will need to reassess that going forward. But part of the thing is, like Ezra's spoken word, <laughs> there's a lot of things written in this book that are simply asserted with no evidence supporting them, which means that one sentence can often lead to more than a few sentences on my part to try to unravel the stupidity of what is mm-hmm. written. But... Before we begin, I want to give a bit of context as to why Ezra decided to write this book. So in February of 2006, Ezra decided to publish in his magazine, which was the Western Standard, which is only recently sort of rejuvenated, he reprinted the Danish cartoons that depicted the Prophet Muhammad. Now this happened 13 years ago, so there could be people listening that don't recall what this is. So why did this matter? The cartoons were initially published in a Danish newspaper on September 30th, 2005, and the reaction to the publication in Muslim-majority countries was not good. Basically, there were riots, uh, murders. It's reported that roughly 250 people died in attacks related to the printing of the cartoons. And this this inspired a debate about whether or not it is a good idea to print the cartoons in the first place, but also to reprint the cartoons. And free speech defenders were outraged by the refusal of mainstream publications and news organizations to reprint the cartoons. So a lot of uh, mainstream, like CNN, all of them, they just refused outright to print them. I think CNN ended up posting them on TV, but they blurred out the image of Muhammad. Uh, But most organizations didn't even publish it at all. Meanwhile, those, uh, and so, and the reason, the reason why they refused to do so is because they didn't see the point in further agitating and causing more harm. So you already had some 250 deaths reportedly related to these, this incident. Why would you stoke more hatred by reposting? Mm -hmm. But Stepan Ezra Levant, the hero, (laughs) to be the first, uh, 
at least semi-widely published magazine to reprint the cartoons when others would not. Hooray, Ezra! This stunt gained Ezra a lot of mainstream attention, including the attention of someone named Syed Sohardi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's a Sunni scholar from Calgary, who proceeded to file a human rights complaint against Ezra a week, uh, a few weeks later after the publication of the cartoons, Ezra's republication of them. And as a result of this complaint, Ezra was forced, by law, to appear before the Alberta Human Rights Commission. Now, I'll say more as we go through the book, but Ezra's own experience with Canada's human rights commissions was the impetus of this book. So he got brought before a human rights commission, and he was super, super hurt by it (laughs) and decided to, to write a book. About a year later, another human rights complaint was brought before the Canadian Human Rights Commission by Mohamed Al-Masari, or Al-Masari, I think that's mm-hmm. better. He is a professor at the University of Waterloo. At least I think he still is by the time of this recording, but I don't know. And this time the complaint was against McLean's magazine for the publication of uh, allegedly 18 Islamophobic articles, including one article, which is an expert, that was titled The Future Belongs to Islam, which was from a book called America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It, by Mark Stein. Ezra and Mark's cases are the main backbone of Ezra's book. In arguing that the Human Rights Commissions have failed, they've gone too far, they're a problem, and Ezra was still fighting his complaint when McLean received theirs. So there's a lot of camaraderie that happened because of that. Especially given that Ezra and Mark were both conservatives, both receiving human rights complaints from Muslim, and both shared a worldview that perceived Muslims as dangerous. Right? So they became natural comrades. And because of this, Mark ended up writing the foreword to this book. So mm-hmm. those, just to give a bit of a lead in, this is why this book was written. And this is why Mark gave the foreword. And that is where we're going to start. That's a Nazi move. His foreword begins by quoting Shirlene McGovern. She's the human rights officer who assigned, or who was assigned to Ezra's cartoon case in the Alberta Human Rights Commission. And after one of Ezra's long and angry rants, (laughs) as as he's wont to do, she responded, you're entitled to your opinions, that's for sure. Now, Mark uses this quote as a rhetorical tool to criticize the Human Rights Commissions. After all, if Ezra is truly entitled to his opinion, why is he being interrogated by a government body over his right to publish something? The obvious stupidity here is that merely publishing an image isn't necessarily expressing one's opinion though it is still arguably a kind of expression. However, this doesn't stop Mark from proclaiming that in Canada, you're no longer entitled to your opinion. It's done. (laughs) Opinion having is over. Mark does seem to be aware that merely publishing something is not expressing an opinion, since he clarifies Ezra Levant was of the opinion that he should publish the Danish cartoons. That opinion brought down upon him the full force of the government of Alberta. You know, it's always this, like, heavy language. But this, again, is really stupid, uh, especially a stupid way of characterizing what happened here. It is perfectly legal to hold an opinion that, say, for example, murder is okay. It is another thing to actually carry out that murder. (laughs) So these are, like, two uh, separate things. Similarly, it is one thing to be of the opinion that you should be allowed to publish something, and another thing as to whether the publication itself is legally allowed. 
but we will address whether the claim had merits in, in later chapters. On a side note, this bickering over opinions uh, kind of reminds me of the final send-off of George Carlin in his last stand-up. So the next time some asshole says, do I have a right to my opinion? You say, oh yeah, well I have a right to my opinion, and my opinion is you have no right to your opinion. <laughs> then shoot the fuck and walk away. <laughs> Mark goes on to say that the reason why we, are, uh, why we aren't aware that we are no longer entitled to our opinions, because he's like, most Canadians, they're not aware, they're not even entitled to their own opinions anymore. The reason why is because we don't live in North Korea, so everything seems normal. Furthermore, when you watch the investigation of Ezra, or what Mike calls, uh, Mark calls an interrogation, when you watch it on YouTube, McGovern doesn't look like your typical jackbooted thug. She's just like some casual bureaucrat. I think another reason why people might not think we live in North Korea is because Ezra was in fact free to record McGovern's questions and then was free to post the video online. It's kind of like, I don't know, I think in North Korea, they wouldn't let you do that. <laughs> However, Mark still characterizes the mere act of McGovern questioning Ezra as part of an investigation for the Alberta Human Rights Commission as a totalitarian act. Again, like lots of like loaded language. Another side note, Ezra still uses clips from the exchange in his introduction. So I guess he was so happy with the video that he posted online that at the beginning of his weekly podcast he plays like his like dramatic speeches of like yelling at McGovern as she just sits there taking it <laughs> because he's he's an asshole uh Mark then proceeds to defend the legality of offensive speech saying if you don't believe in freedom of speech for offensive speech you don't believe in freedom of speech at all and this is because according to Mark controversial topics are those we need to have discussions about and they are sure to offend someone, so you don't want to censor them. This also means that McGovern thinks that, uh, you're all a bunch of snowflakes who need to be protected from offense, so you need the government to step in, where Ezra and Mark, they think you're perfectly capable people with the ability to handle the language that makes you uncomfortable. You don't need the nanny state to come in. What is missing from this discussion and what seems to be absent in the rest of the book is that section one of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is a limitations clause in that it legally allows the courts to limit an individual's charter rights within certain conditions. Usually those conditions are restrained by what's called the Oaks Test. Uh, I'll go into the Oaks Test probably later on. But for now, you just need to know that we have section one of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There's a thing called the Oaks Test, which the Supreme Court has ruled can limit certain rights. In fact, two of the most famous cases in Canadian law ruled by the Supreme Court, uh, they ruled that it is constitutional to limit expressions such as hate speech, which was in the R.V. Kigstra case, which was a teacher who was trying to teach anti-Semitic content. And also, it's okay to limit speech that is obscene. So contrary to what Mark is saying about offensive language, the court actually ruled in R.V. Butler that certain things are obscene and you can ban them. <laughs> and, and usually it has to do with the oak test which has something to do with like uh greater harms basically but it's more complicated than that uh so even if mark thinks that you should be allowed to have the legal right to offend in some cases the supreme court has already ruled that you don't have that right now you might think that this is bad and might want to say mobilize people to change the charter of rights and freedoms or overturn legal precedent or change the canadian constitution but that is a different argument and is not the argument made in this book, which is why it's 
this book is kind of really stupid for that reason. If you really want people to be allowed to say offensive things, you need to change our Charter of Rights and Freedoms because it already takes that right away from you. For example, in the following paragraph, Mark talks about how conservative delegates voted 99% in favor of removing Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. So this was at convention. It just means that the delegates support removing this thing. He signals this as a victory in the struggle for free speech since Section 13 prohibited hate speech. Mark gives the credit of this outcome to Ezra's campaigning. And I would say Mark and Ezra are probably super happy because in 2013, the Harper government actually succeeded in abolishing Section 13, four years after Ezra's book was published. However, abolishing Section 13 does not mean that hate speech is now allowed in Canada, right? So it was a the section of hate speech in the Human Rights Act. All this means is that it now cannot be investigated by federal or provincial human rights commissions under the Human Rights Act. So since the Supreme Court still ruled that hate speech limitations on the freedom of expression are in fact constitutional, it's still a prosecutable crime under federal, federal law. The only difference is if you used to be able to go through the Human Rights Commissions to adjudicate it, now you have to go through courts. So I don't know why they're so happy. (laughs) Anyways, so the issue Mark seems to have with the human rights commissions is that they don't defend real, real human rights. And that's where I'm going to have Caitlin read some of these long quotes. So here's the first one. Quote number one. This is Mark talking about defending real human rights. Okay. Uh, Yet they should really have hung the arms upside down. With the crown pointing to the floor, the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal inverts every principle of common law. It discards real human rights, the right to a fair trial, the right to due process, the right to the presumption of innocence, and supplants them with a set of aristas human rights, human rights, notably the human right not to be offended, not by no one, nowhere, no how, that is, if one one belongs to certain approved victim groups. So what Mark is trying to do is claim that protection against hate speech is not a real human right because minorities are just too sensitive. The other claim about due process and presumption of innocence, uh, we will actually get to in a bit more detail in chapter one. He's not fully correct, but like there's elements in which he is correct that you're not given these same kind of standards in a human rights commission. Mark wraps up his foreword by criticizing the Canadian public's response to his case by talking about line drawing in regards to free speech. So he's like, people should have just been like, free speech, ultimate, absolute. But instead, people are like, well, I can see free speech being good, but maybe not in certain cases. And so he sees that as a fault with the Canadian public. Because for Mark, lines are for cowards. (laughs) You either have the fucking right or you don't. He then toots uh, Ezra's horn. Uh, and his own horn for fighting back when no one else would. And he gives themselves credit for now turning public opinion uh, towards being against or being critical of these human rights commissions. Now that's the end of the forward. We'll talk about Mark in the future because we're going to get to more details about his case, uh, including some fun stuff about cats. (laughs) Just leave it at that. Uh, just Just to keep you hooked for future episodes. But now we're going to move on to Ezra's introduction. That's a Nazi move. Ezra begins his introduction with the 
hyperbolic claim that he was the only person in the world to face legal sanctions for publishing the Danish cartoons. Now, if we were being precise with words, I don't think Ezra was in fact legally sanctioned like he suggests, since that would imply he was fined or received penalties of some kind uh, for the wrongdoing. After all, Syed eventually withdrew his complaint in 2008, almost two years uh, to the day after uh, Syed filed the complaint, and a year before Ezra published his book. So Ezra knew that he didn't get fined or anything. Syed uh, withdrew his complaint. Also, Ezra was not fined for disobeying the commission since he appeared, although reluctant, claiming that he was reluctant, even though he gave a lot of big speeches. So he appeared for the commission's hearing and their investigation. Now, if we're not being precise with our words, then maybe Ezra is simply saying he was forced by law to appear before the hearing and therefore was legally sanctioned, even if that isn't what being legally sanctioned really means. Of course, if we're feeling super charitable, we could say that Ezra was under the threat of legal sanctions, but I digress. However, it is important to pause here and reflect that Ezra holds a law degree from the University of Alberta. He passed the bar exam in 2000, worked in a law firm for at least two years until finally giving up his practice in 2003. He remained a member of the Law Society of Alberta until 2016 when he resigned. He claims he resigned because he was pushed out uh, by the Law Society because the Law Society had received constant complaints about him since 2004. <laughs> uh, all this is to say that I nitpick about a stupid term like legal sanctions because Ezra should fucking know better. <laughs> I'm just some dude with a philosophy and psychology degree. He has a law degree, and yet he's throwing around terms like legal sanction when he didn't get legally sanctioned. He was asked to appear for a hearing. That is <laughs> that is the whole motivation for this bucket book. Ezra then outlines what particularly annoyed him during his interaction with McGovern. So what annoyed him was that she asks him what she claims she asks everyone, which is what was Ezra's intent for publishing the cartoons? For Ezra, this is just evidence of the court's illiberal nature, but he gives his answer, which is that because the cartoons were newsworthy, or at least that is the answer he says he tends to give, but this is what he actually said to McGovern as the answer. We published those cartoons for the intention and purpose of exercising our inalienable rights to publish whatever the hell we want, no matter what the hell you think. <laughs> My answer to your question is as follows. We published those cartoons for the intention and purpose of exercising our inalienable rights as free-born Albertans to publish whatever the hell we want, no matter what the hell you think. I've probably given 200 interviews with people other than the state where I give a very thoughtful and nuanced expression of my intent. But the only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. And I could just imagine the, that like Ezra's picturing like some sort of cinematic universe in his head where he's like trying to like recapture like famous court. Like you can't handle the truth. <laughs> with like the audience gasping at the, the injustice. In fact, the next paragraph, Ezra describes 
immediately rushing home to throw the video on YouTube to show how, uh, oh, oh yeah, to show how ancient 10 years ago is. This is how Ezra clarifies what YouTube is. It's like an internet video sharing site. <laughs> and I was like, was 2009 a time where people didn't know what YouTube was? Or is it just that he's writing for a boomer audience and needs to like cue them in? Because I feel like today you could just write YouTube and maybe. everyone would know what you're talking about. Maybe. Uh, maybe he needed like a bigger word count. <laughs> well, it is only 80 pages long. Of course, uh, modest little Ezra claims he just wanted to share it with a few friends. But it went viral. According to Ezra, it was the fifth most watched video on the entire internet that weekend. I have no way of fact checking that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, I don't even know how he would get that information. Like, it would be one thing if he was like, it was the fifth most, most watched video on YouTube. But the entire internet? My guess is there's probably several porn videos that were watched <laughs> more often than his case. However, he claims that uh, by the time he wrote his book, 600,000 people have watched his video. Ezra then outlines his case against the commissions. So this is his thesis. We're getting a thesis statement. So thesis statement number one. Although the commissions began with good intentions, fighting so-called real discrimination, that kind of discrimination has waned over time, making the human rights commissions uh, now to move towards not real discrimination, such as cases involving freedom of expression. Second part of his thesis. Human rights officers, now with fewer cases due to the end of discrimination, are actively searching for ever more absurd cases in order to maintain the commission's relevance and to continue to receive government funding. So his claims are they were good at first. Now they're not good because we, we solved and cured racism. But now human rights officers are just searching for crazy cases because now they don't have any more cases because all the cases went away because discrimination is over. Racism's done. So now they need to find fake cases in order to like give justification for their existence yeah. to keep receiving money. That's, that's his claim, which seems like a ridiculous thing to try to prove. But there it is. However, to finish the intro, Ezra runs off a list of examples that we will cover in more depth later and then ends with... Uh, his dramatic hook to the book. So this is the second quote. The more I dug, the more I discovered that my interrogation at the hands of the government wasn't unusual. Every day, Canadians from coast to coast are trapped in these Alice in Wonderland commissions where bizarre new human rights are made up on the spot and where regular legal pro uh, procedures don't apply. Sometimes it feels like Saudi, Saudi justice. <laughs> Sometimes it smacks of the old Soviet Union. Sometimes it sounds like a Saturday Night Live sketch. Rarely does it feel Canadian. <laughs> Two points to highlight before we move on to the first chapter is that uh, human rights commissions don't get to just make up human rights. <laughs> that is done through parliamentary amendments to the Human Rights Act. Also, I'm not sure what Ezra means by regular when he says that regular legal procedures don't apply to human rights commissions. Human rights commissions are not Canadian courts. Of course, they don't follow the same legal procedures as, say, courts do. But their existence still fits within the broader Canadian legal framework and therefore still must legally adhere to their governmentally mandated procedures. 
you would think if these courts were so uh, legally irregular that they would have already been ruled unconstitutional by the Canadian Supreme Court. But alas, the commissions are still going strong 10 years uh, after he wrote this book, and they were created in 1970. So they've been going strong for, for a while now. But anyways, that's the end of the introduction. We're now going on to chapter one, which he titles, A Beautiful Idea. That failed. Maybe the whispering won't be picked up. <laughs> That's a Nazi move. So Esser begins by outlining the purpose of the Human Rights Commission. Ezra agrees that fighting discrimination was a good goal. But of course, Ezra has to say true discrimination, just to highlight that he actually thinks there's cases of fake discrimination. He lays out that the commission's goals are to provide quick and low-cost means for disempowered groups to be able to fight back against discrimination, such as... For example, an indigenous person being denied housing because they're indigenous. The commissions would work such that victims would not have to spend exorbitant legal fees. Instead, these would be paid through government funding of the commissions, allowing these victims to file complaints free of cost. The commissions would begin with a mediation process where complaints would try to be resolved amicably. As Ezra puts it, without being bogged down with all the rules of regular courts. If not... Like, so if they don't get worked out amicably, the commission agrees, uh, and if the commission agrees to it, these unresolved cases would then head to a quasi-legal human rights tribunal where legal representatives with training in human rights law will make legal orders. That is all the information that Ezra gives about the human rights commissions in Canada. And you would think for a, and, and this only takes the span of like a couple paragraphs, and you would think for a book that is talking about human rights commissions as the main subject that he would spend even a little more detail on them since even if he got the broad strokes sort of right this account misses so many details that are essential to his book uh, but of course the details don't really matter for Ezra in the following paragraphs he starts writing about how the general mood on human rights has changed since the creation of the courts in the 1970s he literally writes that Obama is president now while I'm writing this book. And this is proof that racism is over. <laughs> we have a black president, everyone. It's all done. Now, you might be asking, what the hell does this have to do with the effectiveness of human rights courts? It doesn't. Even if we accept his pronouncements and society has been pretty much cured of bigotry, that doesn't mean there will be no longer any cases of disempowered people needing the free and quick services of a human rights commission. Because even Ezra claims, like, discrimination is not done, right? His claim, however, is that since there are no more, real no more real cases of discrimination, or at least they're very super rare, the commissions, which are now too big to fold up, are needing to make up new cases of imaginary discrimination in order to keep getting funding. And so we have another quote, if you want to read quote three. That's where things went off the rails. These once honorable institutions aimed at correcting historical justices slid into farce. More and more, the complaints that became a way of the came away were from crackpot narcissists, angry loners, and professional grievance collectors. Their disputes had nothing to do with human rights as we know it, the term, but in the absence of legitimate human rights cases, the HRCS took on their causes with disastrous and sometimes kafakaesque <laughs> results. Ironically, an institution devoted to human rights has now become 
the biggest threat to our core liberties, most notably freedom of speech. So Kafka, for anyone who doesn't know, wrote The Trial, which basically it, it's a book about the Soviet court systems and how crazy they were. So the main character of The Trial gets told he's done something wrong, but he doesn't know what he's been done wrong. And he gets brought before court and he's like, I don't know what he did wrong. And everyone wants him to confess. So they keep him in prison and he doesn't know what he has to confess to because he doesn't know what he did wrong. That's this whole. So the image he's trying to paint is that uh, human rights trials are like the like this Kafka-esque trial where you don't yeah. know what's wrong, you don't know what to say, and you're being held. The only difference is what's portrayed by Kafka in the Soviet system is like legit frightening, and like nothing I understand about these human rights commission reaches that uh, level. But what I do want to say is I think it's now time to fill in some of the details about the human rights commission since uh, Ezra has failed to elaborate on them. Ezra is part right that the commissions were designed to be quick, free, and more about mediation. So that was part of the justification. But the other part was that, well, and Ezra doesn't acknowledge this, which is part of the legal justification of the nature of the human rights commissions. So the commissions were designed to have a reduced burden of proof. So this gets into the due process kind of issue. And the reason why you want to reduce burden of proof was because, uh, Discrimination cases are hard to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to know for a fact that someone discriminated against you. And so often if it would go through the regular courts, which has that kind of high standard, discrimination cases would almost never go through. So there was anti-discrimination law long before there were uh, uh, human rights commissions. But what they found was none of these cases against discrimination were going through because you had to meet some sort of super high standard, right? So the idea of having the Human Rights Commissions were supposed to be quick, because obviously if you're having a housing dispute, you need that solved really quickly. Also, uh, poor people are, or, or disempowered people are more likely to be poor and vulnerable, so you've got to make it free for them. But then also have it such that uh, the standards are lower. And while lowering the standards, they also lower the sort of like fines and stuff that you can occur, so that basically it motivates people to omit certain things and therefore to move towards some sort of mediated solution rather than being fined and other stuff, right? So you can see this is the justification of the courts, trying to think through who are most vulnerable people and how can we help them. Another aspect of the commissions that is relevant is that they are bound by law to screen every single complaint they receive. They even uh, try to get the sides to reach an informal agreement. And it is only then that the commissions open an investigation if they say don't succeed at reaching an informal agreement. If at the end of the investigation, the side still refused to come to some sort of agreement and the commission thinks that the case has merit, it will be then sent to the Human Rights Tribunal. The tribunals, which are the quasi-judicial part of this, will then hold hearings and make a legal ruling, either dismissing the case or levying some kind of legal sanction that has the full weight of the law. However, even this is not necessarily the end, since any tribunal ruling, like any other court ruling, can be appealed to higher courts. So those regular courts that Ezra seems to love so much uh, are a part of the process. <laughs> and to me, this doesn't sound Kafka-esque at all. It seems rather straightforward. In fact, we, if you've had to go through like labor courts and stuff like this, which we're familiar with uh, having worked for unions, it's a very similar structure, having to go to the labor board and then well, first you go through a process of mediation to try to find an agreement and then it, it escalates and so forth, right? So there's like these steps. That's basically a similar thing that's happening here. 
One thing that will constantly happen in this book is Ezra not being clear about this legal structure of the commissions. And I think that's done purposely because he's trying to like make it sound worse than it is. Uh, for example, <laughs> in the previous quote that I had you read, Ezra talks about the commissions taking on these cases of false discrimination. But as I just explained, the commissions are legally obligated to screen every single complaint and investigate those that can't be informally resolved. Since at the time, Section 13 was still a part of the Human Rights Act, these commissions were legally obligated to investigate cases of hate speech, which could not be uh, informally mediated. But Ezra describes this like it is an act of will. That these commissions were like, we want money, we're going to take these cases. <laughs> which is not an act of will. They were legally obligated to do it. Another thing that Ezra will constantly do, which is evidenced by the Obama point, is raise points that don't really advance his argument, although they, are, they might be like superficially seem to be relevant. So in the next section, Ezra talks about Alan Borovi, Borovoy, I don't know, some old dude, <laughs> and George Jonas. And Borovi, uh, for example, so Borovi, to give some background, is one of the human rights activists that helped crafted the human rights laws in the 70s. And Jonas, uh, who's described by Ezra simply as being a current columnist for the National Post, current to this book, he's uh, since been, since, is since dead. <laughs> That's the nice way to put it. Uh, but Jonas has always been critical of the Human Rights Commissions, even when they were being formed in the 70s. Ezra covers them in more detail later, but he's like bringing them up now to go, look, even Borovoy, who initially created the Human Rights Commissions, he now agrees with the critic that he, he used to spar with over them back in the 70s, that uh, the commissions are bad now, so therefore the commissions are bad. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, uh, who cares who played a role in crafting the initial legislation? Like, that doesn't mean he can't be wrong today. Like, maybe he was right in the 70s, but now he's an idiot. Like, that, uh, I don't understand. Like, uh, maybe that would work on some people, but that seems like such a bad way of reasoning. Anyways, Ezra then speculates what would happen if we got rid of the commissions, and he claims that nothing would change in terms of Canadians having uh, their human rights violated. He then drops as an unsourced claim with little evidence to support it. This what's going to be our next quote. So I'll have you read quote number four. In Alberta, for example, the greatest number of human rights complaints is from young white men. The most common scenario involves a young worker injured on a construction job site who wants more compensation than he was contractually permitted under his union agreement, insurance policy, or the province's workers' compensation board. The HRCS were set up to help minorities who were being picked on, not construction workers who discovered a loophole to make a quick 5,000. But bizarre as it may be, this phenomenon is also encouraging in its way. If there weren't so little real discrimination out there, this sort of nonsense litigation wouldn't be dominating our HRS or HRCS. So I can point out the obvious, which is that white men can be the victims of discrimination as well. For example, based on their sexual orientation or disability or religion. But also considering how white Alberta is, <laughs> it wouldn't be that surprising that a majority of the cases are, are by white men. However, I, I can't verify that some nameless young white construction worker 
over 10 years ago found a loophole giving them $5,000. Like, I tried searching for this case for, like, ever. Yeah. And here's the thing. He doesn't source it. He just makes this claim that somehow this construction worker found some friggin' loophole. But whatever. Another poor argument that Ezra tries to make is that even though Alberta is much more diverse in this, uh much more diverse than it used to be, in a single year, the number of cases dropped by 15%. He describes this as a plummet. And so what happened was from, and he doesn't give a, a date range, which is the other thing that's annoying. He just gives two numbers. And my guess it's like from 2008 to 2009 or 2007 to 2008 when he was writing the book. But the cases dropped from 778 to 659. So when you're dealing with small numbers, even like a small shift can like have a big percentage of like a drop. So it's like is 15% is dropping from 778 cases to 659 in a single year that big of a drop? Not really. So I give you the example of uh, Alberta's most up-to-date numbers. So these are from the 2017 to 2018 numbers. There was 1,420 complaints in 2018. And this is down 11% from the previous year, 2017, when it was 1,588 cases. So that's an 11% drop. Oh my God, it plummeted. Uh, but you can already tell that the numbers 10 years in advance are way higher than they were uh, 10 years ago, which means that the cases are steadily increasing. I, I tried my best to find the numbers going back every single year, but uh, it looked to me like the Alberta Human Rights Commission was doing a maintenance on their website and they must have like gotten rid of all their old reports and I have no way of currently like accessing them. But at least within a 10 year span, the numbers are higher today than they were 10 years ago, even though Ezra is citing this as a decline. They're plummeting. They're running out of cases, Caitlin. I would argue you might want the uh, legal apparatus there even if discrimination is super rare. So that's the other thing. Even if it is like decreasing, you still want it there. But Ezra makes a really stupid business argument. So this is his argument because of this decline. He goes, in the private sector, a company that experienced a 15% drop in customers in a growing market would either have to lay off staff or go out of business. And this is a stupid fucking argument because legal institutions are not businesses. Like, you, <laughs> you don't want, well, healthcare this year isn't making us any money, so we might as well just scrap our universal healthcare. <laughs> but Ezra finally raises a legit criticism of the commissions, which is that even if they were initially designed to be quick, they now can take years to resolve cases. Even though Ezra highlights this as a problem, he doesn't explain the cause. All he says is that there's something a little dishonest about a government agency that has a 15% uh, less work to do, takes 7% more time to do it, and still gets the same check each year from the government. Again, if you take a two-year span, those fluctuations don't tell you much, but you can tell by 2017-2018 that those numbers have in fact increased, and this number also doesn't track the duration of investigations. So not all cases are closed in the year that they're open. Some cases take several years to do. So those numbers we're looking at are not current ongoing cases. It's just how many cases get started in that year. So there could be even more cases happen, right? Not only that, funding issues have always been a problem since the commissions were created. And unlike Ezra, I will cite my work. 
the history of funding issues causing stress on these commissions is documented in the 2000 book, Restraining Equality, Human Rights Commissions in Canada, written by R. Brian Howe and David Johnson. I believe they were both at the University of Newfoundland but I, or Cape Breton. I can't remember. They describe what they call the paradox of human rights policy, which is that even though Canadians are becoming more rights conscious, rights policies don't seem to be working. And this is because as governments create more human rights legislation, so they're realizing that people care about discrimination and so forth, they are also putting more and more financial restraints on the commissions, so they're not funding them appropriately. Thus, it creates delays and makes people frustrated with the commissions because they want them to work, but they're not working. And weird that Ezra doesn't cite any of this work in his book, uh, considering that this book was written in 2000 and Ezra's book is written in 2009. Ezra then describes a book released by the Ministry of Education in Alberta for people who speak English as a second language, which Ezra describes as a marketing tool for the Alberta Human Rights Commission, because some of the examples in the book teach people about human rights. Again, I can find no reporting on this, like I don't know what the hell he's talking about, uh, but it sounds absurd on its face since the commissions are already overburdened and underfunded. So how is this going to help them? Like we're going to teach uh, immigrants to read and like further, teach them about human rights and that's somehow going to make it worse for us. Really, it sounds like they just want people to know their human rights. So even though it is burdened, you still want people who are new immigrants to, to learn their rights. <laughs> also, if Ezra was right uh, previously, the courts are artificially slowing down and still getting paid. So why are they only now thinking that it's a good idea to get more cases to somehow justify themselves? Like none of this makes any sense. It's typical Ezra being a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Ezra then says, uh, aren't the human rights commissions redundant? After all, landlord discrimination is already illegal. Can't they just go through the normal courts? So you can tell here, like he doesn't understand why the legal justifications for having these uh, commissions in the first place. Ezra mentions the delays in the commission as a reason why let's just go through the normal courts, but normal courts also have delays. He then says there exists plenty of pro bono legal outlets, so costs, so costs aren't really a problem anymore, which is an, another like stupid libertarian kind of solution, right? The idea of like, we don't need to publicly fund these things because people just volunteer legal work. Uh, so therefore, we don't need to publicly fund anything. Uh, and again, as I said, this completely misses the, the legal justification, which is the lowered standard of proof. So no, Ezra, sorry, the commissions are not redundant. Now we're moving towards the end here. Ezra's last argument in this chapter is that we don't need commissions because every minority has a lobby group now. <laughs> Saying we don't need human rights commissions to inform us about what minorities are thinking. Which again is fucking stupid because that's not the point of HRCs. They're not there to tell us what minorities are thinking. They're there to adjudicate discrimination cases. But Ezra decides to double down on this, which is the last and final quote I will get you to read. When the government gets into the civil rights business, it sends the message that policing our social mores is a job for Big Brother. That message, in turn, cowards into individual and private groups that would otherwise handle the task. If there's no need to write letters to the editor, call in to the ra talk radio shows, join political campaigns, and go to public town halls because a government agency is already... Uh, supposedly taking care of it all, 
we lose track of our responsibilities as citizens to build a proper civil society for our own. I'm just going to point this out. This is a gigantic run-on sentence, and that's why I'm having <laughs> such trouble reading it, because there's just so many fucking commas during it. There's, like, comma, dash, then another yeah, dash, no, then another comma. Sentence. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so I don't even know. Did I read the end? Yeah, to build a proper civil society through our own actions. So if, if you play that again or reread it, the, you... You don't you like you hear what he's saying is that we don't need human rights laws or civil rights because we can just work it out through the marketplace of ideas. That's essentially what he's saying. He's like, if you somehow have a court that's adjudicating discrimination cases, then you don't have to think about civil rights on your own free time. <laughs> like, yeah. so I've that's the most insane argument I've ever heard. It's basically arguing that like we don't need civil rights at all. Yeah. Which then Ezra has the gall to follow this paragraph by saying, my opponents within the human rights industry have attempted to smear me as an enemy of human rights. I am no such thing. How can you say you're no such thing when you literally argued that civil rights actually cause more harm than, than they do good? So uh, he's not against human rights. He just doesn't like government. And he hopes that when you are done this book that you will agree with him and become a super ideological libertarian. Which I have to say, it did not succeed. <laughs> That's a Nazi move. Any closing thoughts on what you've heard so far? Or do you have any thoughts about his writing style so far in some of the quotes that you read? Oh, it doesn't write well. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. It's and like reading one of my students' essays, to be honest. Because uh, it's just a bunch of commas where they shouldn't be. And I mean, like, I'm not the best writer either. Well, I'm, I'm fucked with commas. <laughs> No, I have awkward grammatical or or just awkward sentence structures. That's my issue. Not so much grammatical errors, but like I make the sentence sound a little awkward. It is grammatically correct. It just sounds, it doesn't have a nice flow. That's my issue when I'm writing. But his is just, it's, it's just huge run on. It's just streams of thought. Like it's not, it it like there's certain structures of how you write paragraphs and it's supposed to be like, this is my argument. Here is my evidence. This is my concluding thought. He doesn't write like that. It's just this big streamline of consciousness. Yeah, and that's so, like how his show often is. Like he goes on these tangents. I don't and know like, where they're going a lot of the time. And part so. of me is like with tangents, I can see how when you're just going off the cuff, like on your podcast, like I can see going on tangents. We go on tangents. But when you're writing a book, like going on tangents is like, it like takes you out of it in a weird way. Like when he brings up those two, like the guy who crafted the civil rights legislation in the seventies, it's like, and he says in the writing that, Oh, I'm going to talk about this later. And then it's like, well, then why the fuck are you bringing it up now? Like bringing it up now had no relevance. And then sometimes he he doesn't actually get to it ever. Like you never really get to the point with him sometimes, or sometimes it's like really the end and you're kind of like it just carries on and then finally he says what the whole point is i mean i do this when i'm having conversation with my friends but i'm like you're doing a fucking podcast yeah. right like just well get, this is you're writing get a book, to the which end is like didn't you have an editor who like it doesn't it could have been self-published oh, i can't remember who published it i feel like it was the fraser institute well, the Fraser Institute published like a bunch. Like, I know. Self-published. <laughs> they're libertarians, so they're like, you just need to like free scat your books, and then. <laughs> but like my, the thing that annoyed me about this chapter in particular was like this chapter was pointless. Like this was just your introductory 
thing. Like, why didn't you just do your introduction? You had no need for this chapter at all in it. Especially since, like, I can see the relevance of this chapter being, like, I'm going to lay down the details of the Human Rights Commissions. But he literally spends two paragraphs on it. Which is, like, as a reader, like, I had to do all the research myself to understand these Human Rights Commissions because he doesn't give you any of that detail yeah. at all. And, and I have to say that that's got to be purposeful because he doesn't want his readers to understand what these commissions were designed No, to. I sometimes think that he's just incompetent. I don't really think it's actually... Be- yeah. No, you might be right. I'm, const- no, because, I'm constantly going back. Here's the because thing. This, is, this is what you could have done in order to make it more believable is he could have actually wrote it properly and not so convoluted where he could have given a bold statement shown the evidence for that argument and then made conclusions from that evidence and it's very easy to find pieces of evidence and twist it in your favor that it sounds a certain way that it's not yeah right like you can give me a statistic and depending on who that person is that statistic will be interpreted many different way so if you throw out something to me like one in five men get a higher education as opposed as three in five women complete higher education, right? I would say, oh my God, there's a crisis in masculinity. Men are, women are, women are actually the dominant gender and men are falling, falling way, way behind women. What about the men? However, what I would say is why the hell do we still have a wage gap if women are earning higher levels of education? Why is there occupational sex segregation among men and women? Why are women still discriminated in the labor market if they have higher returns to education or or sorry, higher investments into education? They should have higher returns, which that's not the case when we actually dissect that. I would also also argue, um, is it because women are don't need higher education to get ahead in life compared to men who can just get like a trade and get a well-paying job where we know that that's uh, occupation or in industries, right, that have been male-dominated. And so that's what a competent person would do, is they would try to twist that evidence, like I just gave you, like, that's a made-up stat. I'm sure it's actually pretty close. But, like, like it's true, and it, I don't have the exact numbers. I made the numbers up, yeah. but that's a true, true statistic. Someone could easily look at that and be like, there's a crisis. Boys are falling behind women. Because they're falling behind women... You know, there's, there's women are just more, you know, they're outperforming men. This is discrimination against women. And then you get men's right activist groups. And that's where they, that's what they do is they find statistics on these things, but they, they're true stats. It's just, they've twisted it in a, in a way that. Well, that's why I'm always, because I'm torn between this. Because I think you're part right. I think there's some evidence of Ezra just being an idiot. But then what you're describing to me seems to me like, for example, with the brush fire thing that we mentioned in our last week where it becomes like he had the evidence staring him in the face and he ignored it but he was and able that, but, to twist it in a way right but that, that tells to me that, that he's purposely trying to like make make a argument to his audience and Maybe, convince them but these are like two which different tells time me that there's a bit though, more too. of a intentionality there. there's two different time periods yeah. he could have been criticized all the way through this for the lack of evidence and coherency this book has. I, I will say, like, the one evidence to him being an idiot is definitely the structure of the book. Because even... And so my argument here is, like, okay, massaging the facts that he does 
clearly could be like an intentional kind of like showing a kind of smart ideologue trying to shape the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. But then the structure, the way that it is, is like if he was smart, he would structure this in a way that it was coherent to the audience. Because even me, like trying to read it, it's a messy fucking book. Yeah. I, I will say, going forward, some of the other chapters have a bit more consistency. I say a bit more, <laughs> but uh, at least they're a bit more topical. Like one of the chapters is on like examples of human rights overreaches. And then we have the chapter where he quasi defends Nazis, but we'll get there. <laughs> but they're a little bit more self-contained. Yeah. But that's chapter one. And we'll see you next week for chapter two. Goodbye. Aren't you going to say goodbye to her? Goodbye. <laughs> Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields.